Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 172. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast wouldn't exist without the support of its listeners. If you'd like to become a member, please go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. By making a $1 per month donation, you can help Therapy Chat keep going over the long haul. Thank you for your support. Hey, this is Laura with a quick note. I just wanted to let you know that the sound on this episode is not up to our usual standards. I'm sorry that it may be a bit hard to hear the guest, Dan Brown, but I wanted to go ahead and release this episode anyway because I didn't want you to miss out on all the interesting and important information he had to share. So if you have some trouble hearing, I'm very sorry about that, and I hope you can bear with it and make the most of what he had to share and you know, we always try to do the best possible audio quality. So I know this episode is not up to our usual standards. Thanks so much for listening and for all of your support. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am so excited and honored that I get to interview someone who is really one of the greats. And I don't say that lightly because as you know, I've had some amazing guests. My guest today has worked for the past 30 years in the Division of Continuing Education at Harvard Medical School, and he's also the director of the Center for Integrative Psychotherapy in Massachusetts. Dr. Daniel P. Brown has over 40 years experience in psychology, and he also has an expertise in Eastern meditation that has allowed him to train alongside Tibetan lamas for 50 years. I can't even begin to comprehend the level of understanding he has of that work. And I'm hoping that he will agree to talk with me about how that meditation training and practice that he's had for such a long time 
informs his interest and his work in child trauma and attachment. Dan is also the author of Attachment Disturbances in Adults, which is a very comprehensive textbook about working with adults in therapy who have attachment wounds from childhood. He has also published over 24 books, including some that have been translated from Sanskrit and Tibetan. So I'm going to be talking with a very intelligent person, and I hope I can keep up. My guest today is Dr. Daniel P. Brown. I'm very honored that you've agreed to be on this podcast today. So what I was thinking we could start out with in terms of attachment, there's so much to say about trauma and developmental trauma, so much that could be hours and hours and days and days and days of conversation. But I was thinking that something that people don't seem to know that much about in the general public and even in uh, the therapy world, there's less talk about really what children need in order to have their brains developed to the point of helping them become adults who feel safe in the world. And I was wondering if you could just kind of start off with talking a bit about the neuroscience of attachment and how it's connected to the relationship with the primary caregiver. Okay. Well, the seat of positive emotions and social connection is the medial orbital frontal cortex. And that part of the prefrontal system develops very slowly, isn't fully developed until late adolescence and early adulthood. But that's the center of what assigns emotional significance to events. It's the center for all positive emotions, and it's the center for prosocial behavior. For example, individuals who have extreme dissociative conditions, like dissociative identity disorder, uh, the medial OFC is offline, which is why they are emotionally numb. They experience mostly negative, not positive emotions, and uh, they have a hard time connecting with other people. Whereas if you take people who are very evolved as loving, compassionate people, they're very positive in their outcome. They are very connected with other people, and that would be the epitome of activity in the medial parental or prefrontal cortex. So how that develops is in the context of a secure attachment relationship. Also, other parts of the brain that are very important for intellectual development is the right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the metacognitive center of the brain. Metacognition was first defined by the Piagetian scholar Jean Flavel at Stanford in 1976, and he unfortunately defined it as thinking about thinking. Now we would say it's the awareness of your mental state or awareness of your problem-solving strategies as you're doing them. And it doesn't involve necessarily thinking. It's just awareness of what you're doing at the time or your state of mind at the time. And since the discovery of metacognition, there have been two major developments. One is it's revolutionized the development of education in the West. So now you can get the answer wrong for a complex math problem and if you illustrate the steps in your reasoning because it's been well researched that people who illustrate the steps in the reasoning solve problems more efficiently. And the second way that metacognition has helped has been in the area of psychotherapy because you know, the people at Tavistock, like Peter Fonagy and Howard and Miriam Steele, developed a scale to measure what they call reflective capacity or mentalization capacity. 
it's a scale that goes from one to nine. Most people in the general population score about 4.5 on that, which means that we're mildly metacognitive. People who have been in the years of psychotherapy score eight or nine, which means they've trained themselves to observe their own states of mind. But Tavis Raku found that people who have a personality disorder diagnosis or dissociative disorder diagnosis never score above three on that scale. And they're so deficient in metacognition that they developed a whole treatment around it called mentalization-based treatment, MBT, which has very good outcome data on it. So where kids learn the development of metacognitive capacity is with a attachment system with parents who are not only carefully attuned to them, but who wonder out loud accurately about the child's state of mind. And the children eventually internalize that. So kids who can reflect on their own state of mind and their own capacity to approach and solve problems have parents who were very much interested in how they thought and help them to internalize that ability. Whereas from the attachment point of view, the worst thing you can do for your kids is be present but not present. There's a relationship, for example, between anxious, preoccupied attachment and multitasking by parents. Mm. Kids who are carefully attuned to were provided with a safe environment. In our research, we found there are five major functions of secure attachment. The first was talked about by Bowlby and his pioneering work in the 1940s. And the reason why humans and mammals have prolonged attachment is because it protects the species. That's why the baby deer stays close to the mummy deer during the winter so it doesn't get eaten by the wolves. It wanders off too far, becomes independent too quickly before it's ready to protect itself. And that's true of humans, that the fundamental function of attachment is safety and protection, which is why I've treated over a thousand child and sexual and physical abuse victims in my career. It's one thing working through all the memories of the abusive acts that are done to them sexually or physically. It's much harder to work through the failed protective memories. The other parent who knew what was going on and didn't do anything because that protection is hardwired. It's built into the species and the failure of safety and protection is the fundamental violation of the evolutionary laws of the species. The second is that when children are emotionally upset, parents soothe them and comfort them physically by being close to them, hugging them, verbally reassuring them. And if most of the times that the child is upset, the parents are there to comfort the child, they internalize that and that becomes the main structure for how they, because part of the structure of the mind in terms of how they can comfort themselves without needing somebody else to do it, it becomes the structure for emotion regulation and tolerance of a difficult, intense emotional state. The third main function of attachment is attunement. Securely attached parents and their children are, the parents are carefully attuned to everything that that child does. They are pretty good estimates of the developmental steps of the child and stay on track with the development. But the best parents are not just attuned to the child's behavior, they're attuned to the child's state of mind. And so the child feels deeply seen and known. The fourth is what we call expressed delight. And those are parents who are clearly enjoy their children and they're openly effusive about their positivity about their child's behavior. They repeatedly talk about how much they enjoy their the child and not just the child's behavior, but the child's being. And that's the root of healthy self-esteem. Joe Sandler from the Hempstead Clinic in the UK defines self-esteem as the linking of positive emotions to the self-representation. That's a developmental achievement. It means that for an older child and for an adult, when we evoke our sense of self, if I evoke a sense of dandness, for example, I can evoke that against the backdrop of good feeling, positive feeling. There are a lot of people out there who, when they evoke the sense of self, don't evoke positive feelings. They evoke no feeling because they didn't achieve that developmentally, or they evoke no marginally negative feelings and they're depression vulnerable. 
we would call those people narcissistically vulnerable because narcissism, which is the epidemic of this modern Western culture, is an epidemic of failure to link positive feelings to the self-representation. So when you evoke a sense of self, you evoke it against the backdrop of no feeling. Then you have to compensate with self-agency and you can do a lot of stuff in life, but no matter what you do, your sense of self-esteem applies to what you get done rather than just being feeling good about yourself and your being. So where that comes from is expressed delight by parents. And the reason why that's such an epidemic in Western culture, I think, is because most parents are involved in the job of parenting. It's not the joy of parenting. We're just too busy in Western culture. So we don't enjoy our kids. And the last function is the best of human development is that parents are the champions of the child's best and strongest and most unique self-development. So they know how to bring out the best and strongest sense of self in that child. And that goes back to originally work by John Bowlby because he found that human attachment is the interplay between two different tensions. One is attachment and the other is exploration and independence. The paradox that's built into human attachment is the more safe we are and the more close we are to our parents, the more we push away from that and become more exploratory and independent. And that playful exploration of the world becomes the vehicle of strong self-development. So the more the child is attached, the more they become independent and stronger in their sense of self, not, not the other way around. So they need the parents as a safe haven from which to explore from. So those are the five features of healthy attachment as we discovered. And... Some people get all of those, some people don't get some of those, and some people don't get many of those. But if you look at base rates of secure attachment with different ways of assessing attachment, the studies are highly consistent in modern Western culture, which means Europe, North America. Base rates of human attachment and secure attachment are about just about one out of three people are securely, two out of three people are securely attached. One out of three people are insecurely attached in, in highly child-focused countries when the parents spend a lot of time with the children and the children are the center of the, the parental activities, then the base rates of human attachment go up to 80%. And in some cultures where the people are, the parents just don't have time for their kids, the base rates are remarkably low. We have one, one study that was done in the Soviet Union on attachment in the, in the base rates of secure attachment were 9% because the environment was so harsh and parents spent so much time just procuring food and getting heat for the house that they didn't really have time to be with their kids. In some of the rural areas of China where they have these large factories where kids are put in warehouses at the age of six weeks and they never see the parents for the first three years where the parents work 18 hours a day making tchotchkes for the world, the base rates of human attachment are under 10% there. So we pay for that in the long run because attachment problems go down the generations. That's for sure. And, you know, I did not know either of those things that you just shared about China and Russia in terms of, you know, what the parents are kind of going through and how how the children are affected and, and what countries or what areas of the world or cultures even would you say are highly child-focused cultures? Traditional Japanese culture three to two or three generations ago, some of that's still left. Attachment rates are about 80% there. If you look at uh, the studies that were done in Israel, there is a difference between the high family focus of the intact family, which is the rates go about 80%, and the kibbutz studies go much lower than that. And people are raised by multiple caregivers. So those would be examples. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night 
Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used Therapy Notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. One thing that you touched on, I'd like you to talk about a little more, if you will, is kind of, you sort of mentioned interactive, like co-regulation and then being able to regulate oneself. What I guess, you know, some call auto-regulation, some call interactive regulation, but can you kind of talk about those two things? Well, in the field, we call it dyadic regulation, and it was really an outgrowth of technology that we began to videotape parent-child interactions at a young age and collect a database of that and then have people observe them and pick out the patterns. And parents who are highly attuned to their child do several things that are important. One is they are carefully attuned to what the child's behavior is. They don't initiate for the child. They wait for the child to initiate something and then they show that they're following it by mirroring it back with facial expressions, with vocalizations, and through hand gestures. And they're carefully attuned to the child. When the child makes something new, the child, the parent mirrors that back and then adds something new to it. So the child actually can perceive that they've had an impact on the parent's behavior because the parent just added something new and after mirroring back something, we call that detingency detecting. So the child becomes to feel they're effective in communicating and shaping the the behavior of the, the parent. We used to think that the child was a blank slate who internalized the, the behavior of the parent. Now we think it's clearly a two-way street. And Tiffany Fields once coined the term infant eliciting behavior that good children know how to shape the behavior of their parents just as much as parents shape the behavior of the children. And socially competent kids know how to elicit responses from people. They know how to get what they want from people, not all the time, but reasonably so. So all that is done in terms of watching videotapes in terms of microseconds. And uh, that's now become a major intervention for treatment of attachment disorders in, in young children. If, a, children, if a child has under, say, four years of age and they have disorganized attachment or avoidant attachment or reactive or what we call the anxious preoccupied attachment in, in adults, they have some version of secure, insecure attachment. If we videotape that interaction between the parent and the child and then sit down with the parent without the child present and review the tapes like breaking down films in a sports, sports uh, like a football film, and you just give feedback to the mother and say, look what's happened here. That the child reached out to you and initiated something there and you missed it. This would be a better way of handling that. If you really shape the parents and coach them how to do it, they can actually contingently mirror the child much more effectively and get back on track developmentally with the child if you catch it at a young age. So that videotaping and coaching has become a main, main treatment intervention for young children who have attachment problems. 
Wonderful. Yeah. So that brings me to another thing that I really wanted to ask you about, which is that in my practice, and I know this isn't unusual to my practice, it's not unique to my practice. We have, you know, we see children who have been removed from their, you know, biological parents for some reason, whether, you know, there was a a death in the family, one of the parents died or for some reason, those parents couldn't take care of them or the child was adopted. And the family that they are taken into is very loving, but the new caregiving caregivers don't understand what is happening with the child's attachment in response to that previous experience. Even if, even if they didn't have a traumatic loss, per se, like there was no violence or there was, no, there was nothing that they witnessed that was extremely traumatic, but just the disruption of the attachment with the... Different kinds of problems. There's problems of hurts of commission, which are abusive acts, mm-hmm. by sexual violence. But then there are hurts of omission, which are the things that we miss about what the child needs in terms of attachment, the five functions of attachment I mentioned. So either the acts, the hurts of commission or the omission acts can cause long-term problems in development. Exactly. And the new caregivers, let's say adoptive parents or parents who are, you know, family kinship care providers who are taking care of them, not understanding the, ch- the way the child feels or their behavior, they don't know how to respond to them so that the child can recover from what happened before. And then, you know, they, it's almost like they're coming into what should be a loving home and it's intended to be, but it has the effect of being a harsh place because of the lack of attunement. And the child has attachment patterns that are dysfunctional and the, the new foster parent or adoptive parent doesn't know that. And the child is going to act in ways that are not going to be understandable to the new parent. And the new parent's going to feel profoundly ineffective. That's why we have attachment coaches to, to coach the parents on how to be better, to better attachment figures. And I think in situations like that, we don't use those resources enough. See, as in American society, we have a kind of rugged individualism. And the one thing it's hard for American parents to accept is that they could learn something about parenting. Just... Having kids seems to be right in itself, and parents have the assumption that they know what to do. Stanley Greenspan, when he was at National Center of Mental Health for over 20 years, was one of the main researchers on emotional development in children. In the 1990s, he put out a book called First Feelings, which was taking all of what they had learned for 20 years on emotional development in children, writing into a manual for parents so they could read about how to bring out the best emotional development in children. The book went out of print in six months because no one bought it. Parents didn't want to know that they didn't know how to, they might learn something about being better parents. Same with attachment. Yes. And I think it really, it's the parents' attachment as well that, you know, the child's behavior brings out the, you know, the parents' feelings of rejection or whatever that make it hard for them to connect with the child. And then. Attachment, reactive attachment patterns and it goes down the generations. Exactly. Colin Lyons' roots for the last 50 years at Harvard has worked with children at risk. And what she's done is identify high-risk populations of mothers, mothers who are significantly depressed, mothers who have major mental illness like schizophrenia, mothers who have drug problems, mothers who are borderline. And what they do is they supply those mothers with young children with attachment coaches. They educate them how to be attachment figures. 
the long-term outcome studies show that a lot of those kids come out securely attached where they otherwise would come out with disorganized. So this, the long-term effects of that for half a, half a century of work uh, is very positive. We need to use this more. I do yes. work around custody cases and you get the, there you get the, the, the court case from hell where you get a, a mother who's was sexually abused herself, may or may not have worked it out, believes that her child is being sexually abused by the estranged father, which may or may not be the case. But the more she pursues that, she's anxious, preoccupied, he's dismissive, and the more he dismisses it, they go in, they go in 10 years of different courts and they never resolve anything. What we try to do is take it out of the court and give them both attachment courses, coaches, and get the interest back to the child. Because the courts are ill-equipped to deal with this kind of common problem. Yes, very much so. And there tends to be a, I, my experience, it seems that, you know, if there isn't some type of quote-unquote proof that this really happened, the court doesn't just kind of acts like they dismiss that part. And that, that you know, is a disservice too to all involved. So the attachment coaches that you're speaking about, I haven't heard about that before. Is there a certain method that they're using? Like, is it parent-child intera- interaction therapy or? Carlin Lyons Ruth trained a team of people around her research to become attachment coaches. She lived in the same city and she was at one time in my department. I draw on her network when we need that for the course. How extensive that is elsewhere, I don't know that. Yes. Sounds like it needs to be, but I, it's not anything I've ever heard of here. And are they provided, are they like court mandated for the family? It's hard to educate the courts around, around doing that. The courts tend to assign the guardian ad litem to the child. But they may or may not be sophisticated around attachment issues, in my experience. Absolutely. I teach a course in peak performance at Harvard Medical School. I have one for surgeons and primary care docs, one for executives, and another one for judges. So through my executive training for judges, we try and educate them about this issue. Yes. Are you including that in your peak performance training, or is it you're saying that it would be something? Peak performance for certain audiences. Most of the judges. Wow. Yes. Well, we need more, 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 more about attachment because people do not understand. And I think it impacts people seeking therapy as well, because, you know, combining the rugged individualism that we have in our American culture with people not wanting to kind of say that their parents didn't meet their needs. Let me put that in context for you. So so we're clear about the overall context. Larry Butler, when he was the head of the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, which is the flagship journal for American Psychological Association where most of the outcome studies are done. He was the editor of that journal for 20 years in the 90s and 2000. He did a study in the early, early 90s showing that just about 52% of people who come into psychotherapy don't come into DSM diagnostical conditions, come into dissatisfaction in relationships. That's over half the variance. And before we pin the medical tail on the donkey here and, and give people a medical diagnosis of DSM or ICD diagnosis, he thought we should have called a spade a spade and said that treating relational disturbances is a legitimate domain of psychotherapy, always has been, always will be, and, and, and put that in our diagnostic categories. But I'm not of the view that all relational disturbances are, have to do with attachment. There are three types of relational disturbances. There are attachment disturbances. There are three types of insecure attachment. In adults, we call it dismissing attachment, call it anxious, preoccupied attachment, disorganized attachment. And about one out of three people in modern Western culture has 
one of those three types of attachment disturbance. The second problem is those, oh, those, uh, those attachment maps are developed around 18 months. They start about 10 months and they're fully in place by 20 months, 24 months, which is consistent with when the re representational thinking develops. But that's pre-narrative memory. There are two memory systems. There's a behavioral memory system that's the child's capacity to imitate the behavior of the parent. That starts in about nine months. And the narrative memory system, when you can tell stories about events, isn't fully in place until about four years of age. So that means that most attachment is enacted in relationships. It's not something that we're conscious of. Whereas the second relational map develops at about the third and fourth year of life, where the child develops the capacity for complex emotional ideas, internalizes cultural and family beliefs. And those, those maps are what we call CCRT maps, core conflict relational themes. And they, 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 they're much more articulated and they're much more available to conscious interpretation. So the way you would get at CCRT formulations is you'd take a history of all the close relationships in the person, intimate relationships in the person's life, when they were an adolescent up to full adulthood. And they tell a story of beginnings and middles and ends about the relationship, how it began, what the promise of the relationship was, what happened over time. And you listen to that and you, you, look at, you step back and look at it like a complex musical score. You see there's this probably two or three major themes and infinite variations on the same two or three themes. Relational behavior isn't all over the map. It's, it's can, it can be formulated along certain patterns. Most adults who don't have attachment disturbances still have CCRT problems. So they, they select all kinds of relationships over and over again, same old, same old, one or two patterns. Whereas a Boston analyst, Felix Deutsch, once said, each attempted new relationship is an attempted solution for the previous relationship. There's a certain truth about that. They keep playing out the same old, same old. That's the second relational map. That's, there's a, a number of treatments, short-term treatments, that it can identify and formulate what the relation key CCRT theme is, feed it back to the patient, play it off the hearing out transcripts, show how it comes up in the relationship with the therapist. And if we do that between 50 and 30 sessions, most people change the map. Hmm. There's a, a number of good approaches to CCRT formulations there. The best one it was at the group at Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania, which was Howard Lester-Gaborski and uh, uh, Paul Chris Gritzoff. There's a, one group is a much simpler approach to CCRT formulation, Howard Book in Toronto. And there's Hans Strupp at Vanderbilt. They all have different versions of different languages for the same approach. So some people have problems with relationships. We call those attachment problems. Some people have problems within relationships. That they keep selecting functional patterns and those are the problems within relationships. So that's the distinction we make between people who have problems with attachment and people who have problems with CCRT formulations. See the difference? Is that clear enough? I think so. And then there's a third type of relational map. The third type of relational map is that people who are abused in certain ways when the, when the abuser has power over the individual, controls their it dominates their life, and they're, they're, so the source of the abuser is also the source of whether they live in that. Those who call trauma bonding maps, you see that in the so-called Stockholm syndrome situation, where there was a bank robber who took over a bank in hostage situation in Stockholm some years ago, and there lasted the standoff lasted for several days, and then the, the, the assailants, the victims, have formed a strong, intense bond to the to the assailants. And gave the wrong information to the SWAT team. And one of the, the, when, the, when the whole situation was over, one of the victims visited the assailant in jail and eventually married. As we both said, a faithful dog is a beaten dog. So repeated abuse in a power 
dominating situation leads to a very pathological attachment bond. You see that in hostage-taking situations. You see that in domestic violence situations. And you see that in family incest and molestation situations. So that's a very different map. When someone comes in and they say, I have problems in my relationships, my first thought is, which of these three types of relational disturbance are we dealing with? And if it's, if it's attachment, you always work developmentally up from the bottom up. So you work with the attachment map. person has secure attachment, and we look at the CCRT formulation. If they have a significant trauma history, we look at the trauma bonding map. So we don't just do the same thing for everybody. And each for the, even for the world of attachment, which is about one out of three people, there are three different types of attachment. In adults, we call them dismissing attachment. There's anxious, preoccupied attachment. There's disorganized. And the etiology is completely different, so we evolve different treatments for each one of them. So, for example, people with dismissing attachment, the way we assess it in children is with the strange situation paradigm. It's a more standard laboratory observation, videotaped observation. So you bring the mother and the child into the playroom. The child is between 10 and 20 four months old, and there's no instructions given. There's a couple of chairs in the room, there's toys on the floor, and there's a big plastic box with a lot of toys in it. And you observe what the mother does. Then a stranger comes in for three minutes. You see the reaction of the ch- child to the stranger. And then the mother is asked to leave, and you see the reaction of the child being alone with the stranger for three minutes. Then the mother comes back, and the stranger leaves, and you see the reunion behavior. What it's like for the child to be with the mother again, whether they recover in their play behavior. Then the mother is asked to leave a second time, and the child is left alone for three minutes. And the mother comes back in the second reunion. So you get all the possibilities here. And what we see in that standard observational paradigm, which we've done 50 years of research on that, is that secure kids, the more they seek the mother as a safe haven, the more they can explore the, uh, the new environment. They, 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 they exhibit more, more complex exploratory behavior. They show a clear differential response to the mother and preference for the mother over the stranger or being alone. But when the mother leaves, they, can, they don't inhibit their play behavior. They recover and they go back to play. It's not as efficient. And they have healthy protests when the mother goes away and they have good healthy reunion behavior when she returns to the room. Kids who have what we call avoidant attachment in kids or dismissing attachment in adults, they've taken the attachment system offline. So they go right for the toys. They don't care whether the mother's there, whether they're alone, or whether the stranger's there. They just go for the toys, but they get very expensive with the toys and get frustrated easily and they throw the toys and deactivate the attachment. Then kids who grow up with what we call anxious preoccupied, they have the opposite. They have inhibited exploratory behavior. And they get clingy in their attachment. So that no matter what you do, you can't coax them to explore this new strange environment easily. And when the mother leaves, they get so disorganized, they can't play after that. So they show inhibited play behavior. Play behavior is the vehicle of self-development. Thirdly, you get kids who take both the attachment system and the exploratory system offline. They get disorganized in their behavior. They have a lot of dissociative symptoms. Now, for those three types of attachment, there's a different etiology. Kids with dismissing attachment are kids who are repeatedly rejected of their attachment. So I would reach out to the parent. The parent would not be there. It's very common in, in histories of people with dismissing attachment that the parents said they didn't feel comfortable with physical affection with the children. They rarely cuddled the children. They rarely touched the children. They didn't soothe the child. And the child, healthy children need that from the parents. But in addition to that, when they reached out for the parent, the parent just wasn't available. The worst thing you do for your kids is to be present but not present. It's better to be physically absent. So people who are present but not present and 
or uncomfortable with affection towards their kids, they're going to raise kids who have dismissive attachment. The second type is anxious preoccupation. And there are several things that contribute to that. The main thing is what Mary Main calls involving behavior. The parent is carefully attuned to the mother's state of mind. He's constantly regulating the mother's state of mind. So the child learns to be hyper-attuned to other states of mind and to cue themselves off of the other person's state of mind and to regulate that. It is the parent isn't there to regulate the child's anxiety. So these, there are three things that happen as a result of that. These children have weak self-development because they've impaired exploratory behavior. They don't have a strong sense of self. They're chronically anxious. And they become chronically trained caretakers of other people's needs at the expense of their own needs. That's anxious preoccupation. There's also some research that suggests that multitasking behavior affects anxious preoccupation because the main contributing factor is the same. It's parents who involve their kids too much in their state of mind, but that can also parents involve themselves in too much of their, their behavior. So a mother who's saying, I'm with my kid all the time because I have the kid on my lap while I'm cooking dinner, that's not playing with the child. That's doing something that parents doing for themselves and getting the child to go along with it and the parents accommodate, the child's accommodated. So multitasking behavior is one of the contributing factors to this involvement too much in the parent's state of mind. And some parents are just uh, uncomfortable with letting the child become strong and independent, so they thwart that, they don't encourage that, they actively discourage the child. So those are the three things that contribute to it, just And with disorganized behavior, what contributes to that is the, is the, the dilemma for the child is that the source of parenting is also the source of terror for the child. So parents who are the, uh, physically or sexually abusive to the child, parents who are too loud, or overstimulating their child, parents who are scary to the children, parents who are dissociative and out of it, or kids who or parents who are going to raise kids who have disorganized attachment. And each one of these three types of attachment behavior needs a completely different type of treatment. So that's why it took us 20 years to develop our attachment book, because we tried to evolve specific treatments for each of these three types of attachment, not just the generic treatment. And I appreciate the way you explained both what the child feels and what the etiology of it is. That's extremely helpful. Thank you so much. So you have, I understand you have kind of developed some training tools now and courses and things to help people understand this. You know, I think it seems at a more basic level than the extremely in-depth knowledge that you have. Am I right? Yes, we've evolved a treatment called, or attachment called the three pillars of attachment. And the first pillar has to do with ideal parent figures. We've discovered that attachment behavior in children starts in the first days of life. But the internal working models, as Bobby called them, for attachment, internal map for attachment, isn't really in place until about 18 to 20 months. So the main critical factor is not attachment behavior on the part of the parent, but how that's internalized in the form of an internal working model of attachment map. So a lot of the attachment treatments that we saw out there had to do with therapists trying to play the role of being a good attachment figure. And they may or may not do that well. We work with imagination. We say to a person with an attachment problem as an adult, we say, imagine growing up in a family different from your family of origin. With a set of ideal parents ideally tuned to you and your mate. Imagine being with these parents in a way that they're being with you just the way you need to feel absolutely secure in your attachment relationship. And they shape the imagery in their imagination because their imagination creates new possibilities over and over again. And they do that every session and they practice that at home visualization each day. Six months to two years later, they develop a new positive map for attachment. It rewrites, overwrites the old map. 
dysfunctional attachment behavior. They start selecting for healthy attachment. Towards the end of the treatment, we change the map from what we call secure intimacy. We have to imagine a map of a hypothetical time in the future when they are getting similar qualities in their adult relationship. I mean, there it's not only that they're receiving those qualities, but they're also providing those qualities. So it's, it's reciprocal. So that's called the internal ideal parent figure map. The second part of the treatment, and oh, for that first part of the treatment, we, we divide that into different approaches over time. First, we do generic treatment. Imagine parents, ideal parents who are giving you, being with you in a way that you feel absolutely secure in the attachment relationship and modify that in a way that feels just right for you. That's generic. Then we go through the five functions of attachment. Imagine them providing you with safety. Imagine them being carefully attuned to you, comforting you, expressing their delight and joy in your being, being the champions of yourself today. And then we individualize it. We use the adult attachment inventory, which is the structured interview, the goal standard for measuring attachment. And whatever descriptors they gave us for their parents, which are sometimes negative, we'll translate them into the positive opposite of this. And we'll individualize the treatment protocol so that they're getting exactly what they didn't get. We can tailor it that precisely. So that over time, they're imagining getting exactly what they didn't get the first time around and develop a positive mapping for that, rewriting their attachment map in their head. It takes about six months to two or three years to change the attachment system. The second part of the treatment is developing metacognition, is the capacity to reflect on their own state of mind, because that's a very important part of the attachment treatment. The first generation of that work was Mary Main's work on what she called the metacognition scale for the adult attachment. And there was a much more sophisticated development of that with the reflective function scale that Peter Fronig and Holland and Miriam Steele developed at Tavistar. So you can actually measure attachment. That's what developed the whole mentalization-based treatment in the UK. It became very popular. That's very good outcome studies for people with personality associates. Then the third generation was the Rome's Institute of Cognitive Therapy, Tony Samareri. Giovanni Liotti, and they did a condition-specific approach to metacognition. See, in the West, we think that metacognition is all one thing. If people have reflective capacity, they're mindful of their feelings, whatever. But that's not what the Rome School did. What they said is that there are different metacognitive skills, and for different patients, they're deficient in certain skills, so you can be that precise. So one is metacognitive recognition, the capacity to be aware of what you're feeling. But a very different one is metacognitive mastery, the capacity to be aware of what you're feeling in a way that regulates that feeling. What they found in their research is borderlines are very good at metacognitive recognition, but they're poor in metacognitive mastery. They're often aware of what they're feeling, intensely so. And they're certainly aware of what other people are feeling, but they can't regulate it. Whereas the narcissists are the opposite. They are very, they're very poorly aware of their own feelings and certainly oblivious of most other people's feelings. But they have good capacity to regulate their good metacognitive mastery. So what the Rome School said is that for a narcissist or a borderline, you have to use very specific interventions to get at what specific metacognitive deficit is. And the other scale they developed was what they call metacognitive integration. If I were to ask a patient who's very dissociative or who's borderline, give me a, a number from one to 10, how organized, disorganized your mind is right now. One being completely disorganized, 10 being organized, completely organized, the other number somewhere in between, give me a number. If they say two, that means that they're fairly disorganized. But if I ask them that scale three or five times a session, and I do that for six months, it shapes the direction and metacognitively be aware of the disorganization and it actually corrects for it. So they, if we measure coherence of mind over time, they actually get better. We have high coherence of mind. But the trouble that we had with most of the scales on metacognition that were developed, say, say in the Tavistock approach, is they use preformal development. In other words, they're still using 
types of metacognition that are, that are children develop at the age of four years of age. And even Piaget, when his models on intelligence, said that, that um, he stops in adolescence with form of the operational thinking. If we think that intelligence stops with adolescence, we'd be in trouble as a human species. <laughs> and some people have mapped out what are called post-formal stages of cognitive, post-formal stages of cognitive development. There are seven of them beyond formal intelligence. And we've mapped out not only the stages of post-formal cognitive development, but post-formal metacognitive development. So some of those have to do, for example, with perspective taking, which people with highly dissociative disorders or borderline personality disorders don't have. So we find that early on in the treatment, we get them to take a larger perspective in life. They get out of themselves and it has, a, it has an organizing effect on states of mind. So we emphasize in the, our metacognitive development, post-formal cognitive development, high-level skills that, that our patients can learn and they get better quicker than that. And the third, the third part of the pillar of our treatment is fostering collaborative behavior. I learned this from, from the Rome group, from Giovanni Liotti, who died this last year, unfortunately. So. Mm. But he was a student of the social anthropologist Michael Tomasello, who spent 10 years studying primates and looking at collaborative behavior. And chimpanzees and apes will collaborate over getting food, but they won't share it very much. What's unique in human evolution is beyond collaboration, getting food, we'll collaborate around all sorts of team projects and abstract ideas. So humans are, in evolution, are normally collaborative. But what Tomasello found in his work is that that depends on attachment behavior. If kids grow up in secure attachment situations, they're normally collaborative. They share their toys at school. They get empathetic with the kids in preschool who are upset and crying. For kids who grow up in an insecure environment, their normal collaborative nature, which is part of evolutionary plan, is taken offline. So insecure kids grow up not collaborative. So they have to relearn how to be collaborative in therapy, for example. We all know that borderlines need to uh, good attention to the treatment framework in order to get better because they don't show up on time and they don't they come late or they don't organize their lives to use the treatment in ways that it's not going to work. So teaching people how to be more collaborative as part of the therapy intervention is our third pillar of treatment. We learn that mostly from the, the obvious work. Those are the three pillars of treatment. We find that if we do those three things once a week on the average of six months to two or three years, people are getting better. We measured that in several ways. One is that we gave them all the adult attachment inventory before treatment and after treatment, and they went from insecure to secure attachment. Second, we measured coherence of mind on a one to nine scale, and they went from low coherence to having high coherence, which we, high coherence is between seven and nine. And third, that we measured the reflective capacity, that is a general function for metacognition, and they went to uh, improved metacognition, what was below three to about five or six range, sometimes higher than so that was our outcome data. So the treatment works. So with your three pillars of attachment work, is it is it available now in an online format or some kind of self-paced learning process? I had eight other people working on this attachment book with me. We worked together for 10, 20 years, most of us. So they're all well-trained in this. So most of them will do online supervision of others. We have supervision groups in California and Canada. Australia, in a site called attachmentproject.com. gives an overview of the three different types of attachment, the three pillars treatment, and there's a continuing education course. There's a continuing education course that you can take online. It gives CEU credits in the U.S. for, for it, and we hope that people will, will find a more readily available way to 
to learn this attachment approach over time. And uh, where, we, where people, where we've learned it in a certain critical area, then what we do over time is we you know, master classes, classes, either Zoom or... Mm. So, or what that means is that if people have learned the system and they're working with it, they can arrange a time with one of the authors of the book to get further consultation supervision about the questions about how to do this correctly. That's fantastic. And so these courses are available at attachmentproject.com? Attachmentproject.com, yes. It's now up up and running. That's wonderful. So we are already at the end of our time. I could ask you questions. You're like an encyclopedia. (laughs) You're really like, I can't believe the way you can just pull the names and recall them. I cannot do that. (laughs) 50 years will do that, huh? I'm way, uh, way behind, but I'm extremely grateful that you were willing to share just a tiny sliver of your incredible knowledge with us today. And so I definitely want to direct people to attachmentproject.com to find these courses and this material and videos. Is there another place that people should go to find more of what you're doing or is that the main place? Well, I'm trying to take all my courses and put them online in the next year. So we have a course on complex trauma. We have one on treating conversion disorders, which no one knows how to do anymore. We have a course on treating personality disorders and dissociative disorders. We have a course on treating bipolar disorders. We have a course on treating somatoform disorders. We have a course on treatments of anxiety disorders and depression. I'm trying to put all that on film. That's amazing. That is an extremely important body of work for people to be able to learn from you. That's yes, because all of the, you know, conversion disorders, somatoform, those things, certainly people aren't learning about them in school. And it's not like there are many continuing ed courses on those subjects. So much needed. Well, most of the education really is postgraduate. So that's why we thought we put all our life. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. I would love to talk with you again if we can make that happen. But in the meantime, this has been a wonderful discussion, and I can't wait for our audience to hear it. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Dan Brown. Well, as you heard, he knows a lot about this subject. I I was in awe of all that he had to teach. Clearly, we did not get to talk about how meditation fits in with attachment. Although, you know, based on some of the neuroscience stuff that he did talk about, those of you who know about neuroscience and understand how meditation and how meditation helps the brain, you may be able to put two and two together there. I can't, I don't think I understand it well enough to be able to explain it, but I'm hopeful that Dr. Brown might be willing to come back and talk again about his 40 plus years of meditation and how that does fit in with his work, because I think that there must be some connection and we just did not have enough time to talk about it today. I hope you found this episode informative. I don't know how you could not have because there was packed full of information. I would love to know what you thought about it. Please feel free to share your comments on social media, on my Facebook page, 
Twitter or Instagram or on YouTube or via SpeakPipe, which you can access through therapychatpodcast.com. You can also feel free to visit your platform where you listen to podcasts and leave a comment about the episode there. However you choose to communicate, I'm always happy to hear from you. And thank you so much for your support of this show. Be talking to you soon. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Just another reminder that if you'd like to become a member of Therapy Chat, supporting the podcast while receiving fun member perks and being able to communicate with me one-on-one, go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. If every subscriber donated just $1 per month, Therapy Chat would be able to keep going strong indefinitely. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.